Good morning, Midland Free. Good morning. My name is Jeremy. We welcome you here. We're glad to have you worshiping with us. Uh, as a church, we're going through the book of Galatians right now, which is a really cool letter that the Apostle Paul wrote a long time ago to people in a very different setting. And yet, even though such was the case, it still has a beautiful message for us today. So my desire and my privilege is to be able to communicate to you uh, the glory and grandeur and gospel of God that he has handed down to us through his written word. In the announcements today, you heard about some cool events coming up, New Year's Eve, Christmas Eve, stuff like that. Uh, this week, there was another cool thing that happened. I was at a banquet on Thursday night for the PRC, which is the Pregnancy Resource Center here in Midland. And that was a great event, and there were a lot of people there. And one of the neat things for me as a pastor is I'm going to this community event thinking that I'm representing my church, like, okay, here I go, I'm going to say hello, and blah, blah, blah. And I looked around the room, and I basically saw my church. I was like, oh, hi, guys. Good, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> there were so many people from Midland Free, so many tables, so many supporters. It was an absolutely wonderful thing to see. So thank you for, that, for your support of this most excellent ministry here in Midland and that mission that we have all around the United States. So thank you. Thank you for that. I have a question to ask you this morning. And I'm treading a little bit on thin ice, even though it's only raining today and it's not quite winter. But this is a question, by the way, kids, that you should never talk to mom and dad about. Don't ever ask your mom and dad this question. It may cause you to be written out of the will. Let me just assure you. This is the question, okay? Do not ask mom and dad about this question. It's inappropriate at uh, the dinner table, but it's just right for right now. The question is this, is are you excited about your inheritance? Yeah, mom and dad says, what? <laughs> are you excited about your inheritance? Is that something you think about? Is that something you look forward to? Is it something you dwell upon that motivates you when you get up in the morning? Depending on your situation, the answers could be very, very different. Uh, my parents uh, grew up in situations that were both Basically, inheritance lists, you know, meaning no inheritance. Uh, my dad's dad was a mechanic in Nebraska, and they just lived week to week. And my mom's parents, uh, well, she had a difficult situation, so there wasn't a lot of support there, and she ended up living with her neighbors at some point. But So they're looking at their lives saying no inheritance. Well, I look at my life, and I have a different story, and you look at your life, and you have a different story, and... We look at our lives and we ask this question to ourselves, but it's very important that you never ask it to your mom and dad. Why? Well, it's insulting, isn't it? Well, it's very insulting. In a sense, what you're saying is, you know what, mom and dad, I value my pocketbook or I value my wallet more than I value my relationship with you. So what I actually want is not you, but what you have to give. And that's really mean. That's insulting. That's, it's almost profane. You just wouldn't say some of, something like that to someone you love. Moreover, you'll also see that we don't talk about uh, inheritances very much because 
Let's just assume for the sake of argument, for fun, that there actually was a big pile of money over here and you were going to get a big inheritance. Well, if that were the case, then perhaps your parents might be afraid that, you know what, if we tell these kids this, then they're just going to sit back and relax and do nothing and never make anything of themselves because they know at the end of the day they got a check coming to them so they don't have to work. And that's what no mom or dad wants. What they want is for you to go not to build your life around this thing, but instead to go out and do your own thing and become proficient in that. So parents don't talk about it. Moreover, there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty behind it. For example, if you save and invest and you have you know, annuities or portfolio or stock or whatever, at the end of the day, there's still potential for tremendous market fluctuation and other things that could all of a sudden do away with everything you've earned. Moreover, the last few weeks of your life can often be some of the most expensive weeks of your life. Long-term care, specialized care, etc. Very expensive. So even if you have a cushion, there's no guarantee that it won't be completely burned up. And so for all these reasons, for the nature of the relationship, for the impact it might have upon their work ethic, and also for the uncertainty surrounding this thing, we don't ever usually talk about inheritances. But I actually know one person, one father in fact, who tells his children every single day about their inheritance. He's like the total opposite of what I just described. In fact, his philosophy is that the more you talk about it, the better. And so he tells his kids over and over again, you guys are rich. I mean, you don't know it yet, but let me assure you, you are filthy rich. You guys are loaded. And in fact, his, his theory goes that the more he says it to his children, the harder they will work. It's not that they will lose their work ethic, but instead they'll look at the future with no concern or fear whatsoever, and so they'll be willing to take tremendous risk. They're like, hey, either way, it doesn't matter for me. I'm good to go, so why not try? Full bore, 100% all in, because I've got a cushion. Fail safe, no matter what happens, I'm good to go. So let's go for it, because in the end of the day, I'm rich. So they're entrepreneurial risk takers, hard workers like crazy. Moreover, he says that it'll, in fact, enhance their relationship because they will appreciate what he's given to them. And he wants to enjoy the reality of seeing them enjoy their inheritance before he's gone. And so it's a completely different philosophy. And his is, in fact, that talking about inheritance gives assurance, it gives encouragement, it gives confidence, and it motivates towards a greater effort, and it enhances a relationship rather than it detracts from one. The father I'm actually talking about this morning is God the Father. And this is the way he refers to our spiritual inheritance. He's coming to you, Christian, to you, Midland Free, this morning and say, you guys may not realize it or not, but you are rich. You are filthy rich. In Christ, by nature of your adoption into the family of God, you have an inheritance coming that is beyond your wildest dreams. And it is so sufficient, it is so important, it is so effective that you can reach into that bank and withdraw and take out deposits right now. 
So every day in your life when you struggle, you can reach into the grace of God and say, Lord, I need a withdrawal. Now's the time for you to share your riches with me. God, give me the grace to get through this day. Galatians chapter 3, there are three analogies being used. The first one's a prison guard. Here's, here's a slide of that. The first one's a prison guard. It's pretty short. There's not a lot there. The next two are a nanny and a trustee. So a prison guard, a nanny, and a trustee. And basically, the point of all three is to say, look, you have this inheritance You have this eternal wealth. These riches are yours by nature of your relationship. So while you can't get at the lump sum, you can take withdrawals right now. And God is encouraging you to do so. Galatians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, I'll go ahead and read this. We at our church like to preach from the Bible because we believe the Bible is the Word of God. and communicates His truth to us today. If you have a Bible, we invite you to turn. If you don't, We're going to show the words to you up on the screen so you can just follow along comfortably. This is Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. It says this, The Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Here's your prison guard analogy. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith will be revealed. End of that analogy. Verse 24, the next one. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under our guardian or our nanny, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Therefore, there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, third analogy. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers, that's like trustees, until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, that is spiritually, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time came, when that appointed date arrived, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law. Why? Why did God send Jesus? to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption into his family as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Galatians chapter 3. That's an interesting text, Paul. You used a lot of different analogies. How does this fit with the point of your book? Because what I've understood so far is that you've been saying, you know, by grace through faith, by grace through faith, all along, not of works, not of yourself, not of the law, but instead salvation, sanctification, glorification, the whole bit 
comes by believing in Jesus Christ and accepting it by grace through faith. How does this work? Well, Paul continues that message today. And the reason he's using these analogies is because the people in this setting are trying to figure out their relationship to the law. They're like, we've been under this system for so long, we just don't see how it works now. And what Paul is saying is that it's kind of like this. It's like a nanny or a guardian. You're under it for a while, but then you grow up. It's like being in your parents' house. You're there for a while, but then you graduate, and eventually you move out on your own. It's like a will that you've had for a while. It's in place. It's set. But at some point, all of a sudden, whatever was reserved for you in the will becomes yours. All of these things are temporary. They are set from the beginning by the Father with an intended course so that at the right point in time, it comes to fulfillment. Such is the case with the Old Testament law. So that if you come to a point of maturity, you would never say, yeah, I'd like to have a babysitter again. You know, put me back under my nanny, please. Because it was so much better when I had someone to slap my fingers with a ruler. No way. Now you're at a point in time where you make your own decisions and you don't live under the law, but you're believing by faith in Christ and moving forward in God's redemptive plan. So these three analogies are basically all working together to communicate the same thing, that now has come a tremendous change in the economy of God so that we are no longer spiritual children, but instead spiritual adults. So you see that in the first analogy then, this one of the prison guard. It's pretty short. It's just a verse or two. Verse 22 and verse 23, uh, they say this. Verse 23, you were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Held prisoner until the coming faith would be revealed. What this means is this, is fortunately, and you'll be glad to hear this as well, I've never been a prisoner in jail, okay? Just, I mean, if you have and you're here, we are so thankful you're here. Let me assure you of that. But at the same time, uh, what I understand is if you are incarcerated, then you're generally in there for a certain period of time. And I imagine in jail, just like in life, it requires patience, And so from this beginning analogy, that's one of the first things I see is that in our Christian life, we have these holding periods or these times of stretching when God has not brought things to fulfillment that we're just kind of in what we feel is no man's land, but in reality is God just telling us to wait. The time may not be right. So here you are right now. It has not come to fulfillment. You will be free and you'll get to move forward at the right point in time. But right now you need to wait. Hold, hold steady, wait until the fulfillment, until the faith will be revealed. Analogy number one, prison guard. Analogy number two is that of a nanny. This is in verses 24 and 25. It says it like this. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now, the word guardian here is a Greek word called pedagogue, uh, from which we get pedagogy or teaching. So some translations use tutor as an example. 
But when we think of the word tutor, often we hear someone who's, you know, you meet with after school to help you with your reading, writing, or arithmetic. But in the Greek system, the tutor was different. What they would do is they were a little bit more like a nanny. They show up at the start of the day. Mom and dad are getting ready to go off to work. And they make sure you've got your breakfast, you make it to the bus stop, and you don't get in a fight with Ralphie, right? You go, and there you are, and you're, you're protected from external, and, uh, external evil, both physical and moral. And they get you to school, and then you come home, and at the bus stop they receive you again, and they bring you back to the house, and they say, now, here's your snack, now do your homework, now practice your piano and get ready. Dinner's going to be on the table when mom and dad come home. That's the work of a nanny. They guard you from evil. And so in a way, the nanny and the law, the apostle are saying, basically work exactly like each other. The nanny is an external force imposed upon you by your parents who uses strict discipline, sometimes corporal punishment, to prevent you from falling into physical or moral evil. It is preventative, but it's not a cure. That's what the law is. It's an external thing that God the Father has given to his people to prevent them from physical and moral evil. It cracks the whip on them, but at the end of the day, it doesn't heal their hearts from the spiritual and uh, moral side of things. You cannot impose perfection upon people. It only gradually occurs by the work of the Spirit and the sanctifying act of God in your heart. And so in the promises of the New, custom, in the new, new Covenant, new, in the coming New Testament, God is always saying through his prophets, I will circumcise your hearts, meaning we're going to switch from this Old Testament circumcision of the law to a totally different new thing when I put my spirit inside of you and everything changes for real. It's no longer just an external thing that I'm imposing upon you, but instead it will be real change. From the inside out. And so in verses 24 through 25, Paul is bringing that to their attention and saying, look, the law is kind of like a nanny. It is something that was external for a period of time, but now that you are older, it's come to completion and you no longer need it. Who wants to have a babysitter again? Who wants to go back? None of us. You've come to the point of maturity. So then, verse 24 says, So then, the law was our guardian until until Christ came. Why would you ever want to go back? So the law was our um, prison guard. It was our nanny. And third, the law is a trustee. The law is a trustee. Now, I'm not a legal expert, as you know, but uh, we do have a will for our family, and we kind of walk down uh, that sort of idea. And what happens is if my wife and I die now, whatever we have, whatever equity or whatever, goes into this trust that's given to the stewards or managers of our estates, and it's there to help our children with their living expenses until they become of age, and then when they do, whatever's left, they get. In a very real way, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying was like the Old Testament law. 
Basically, he was saying it, it is a will or a trust that God the Father gave to his people at a certain period in time. Chapter 4, verse 2 says it like this. An heir is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, notice very carefully that the date is set in advance. Dad says, okay, when you get 18 or when you turn 21 or whatever, this is when, boom, everything comes to you. So if you're like Bruce Wayne and all of a sudden you become an orphan and you're raised by Alfred... At some point, you inherit your parents' estate. They have set that in advance. Now, verse 4 tells us that that point in salvific or redemptive history had come when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So, in other words, this analogy is working like just like a father sets a date for his children to receive the inheritance, so too God the Father set a date for you to receive your inheritance. So when is that? Well, it's like this. Look, at one point, this law or this covenant was put into effect. At what mountain was that? Mount Sinai. Exactly right. Then, listen carefully, at another mountain, that, that covenant was fulfilled. What mountain was that? Mount Calvary. So the start is on Mount Sinai. The conclusion or finish is on Mount Calvary. As a result of the death, the inheritance promised beforehand becomes available. The period of the law, the fullness of the time, the date set by the Father was from Sinai until Calvary. In the perfect fulfillment of all of God's promises leading up to this point, you now have the completion of everything in Jesus Christ. Because of the death, the inheritance is available. Now, let's think about this for a second from a human perspective because for, from a spiritual perspective, it's almost exact opposite. From a human perspective, if you go to a funeral, what you see is that death is an absolutely horrible thing. That sin has won and the body is laying in the casket and it's the result of the evil that has entered our world. Sin has won. And now, as a result of that death, your relationship is severed. It's stopped. There's no more communication going on between you and that person. You can't talk to them. They can't talk to you. It's stopped. And a gigantic barrier or gulf of separation has been set between you and that person. Now, there's no more communication. There's no more relationship. There's nothing ongoing. All you have is memory. It rips the relationship apart and puts a huge barrier between you. And that, by the way, my friends, is, I think, one of the things that's so horrible about death. Sometimes I'm a little bit bothered when I go to a funeral and I hear things about, you know, 
flowers in God's garden and angels in Cupid's wings. The reality is death is death and it's bad and it's evil and it's horrible. And that is what Jesus came to save. To overcome by his victory at the cross. And so what you have then in, in, in the physical is exact opposite of the spiritual. This week, uh, this Saturday, I was at an elders retreat all day. And so I wasn't at the soccer games. And so I came home and as a natural human being, my question to my kids is, how'd the soccer games go? You know, did you win? Exactly right. We're always interested in whether we win or not, right? I don't know why. We just are. And so the question is, did you win? How'd it go? Blah, blah, blah. And one of my sons, who's pretty competitive and a little bit athletic, uh, said, well, we tied, you know, and this is the reason. This guy did this and this guy did that. And I tried to help him out, but, you know, he just he couldn't carry the load. And, and I said to that son, I said, well, you know what? It's just the way it is. Sometimes we human beings, we just lose. In fact, we can't ever always win. It's a guarantee that at some point as a human being, I am going to lose. There is, in fact, only one who always wins. And his name is Jesus. And that's your only hope. And that's your only joy. And that's your only fulfillment. And that's your only chance is the sovereignty of God and the victory of Jesus. And so when you come to this deathbed and you think, man, I've lost... What do you look to? You look to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who even in his death is proclaimed Christus victor. Jesus won. And in his death, then, what you have is, in fact, the exact opposite of what we have in our deaths. So, for example, in our death, it rips the relationship apart and puts a huge barrier between us. But in the death of Christ, What happens? The veil that was separating us is torn apart and the barriers and boundaries are removed. Christ's death actually opens the door for more relationship. Instead of separating two parties, it brings them together. Instead of stopping all forms of communication, it increases communication by the spirit in our hearts from whom we call out Abba, Father. What happens in the death of Christ is the exact opposite of what happens in the death of human relationships. Thus, the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection make the spiritual adoption and inheritance available to us right now. Now, if you looked at your bulletin earlier today, you probably saw that Uh, This sermon was entitled something like Adoption of Sons or Adoption by Faith or something like that. And so I began to study it. And as you can see this sermon unfolding, really I think the emphasis in this chapter is not necessarily on our adoption, but instead our inheritance. But as you look at that term, I still don't want us to gloss over it because it's so beautiful and rich with incredible biblical imagery. The idea that we are all brought into the family of God. I myself and my wife, we've never adopted children, but we're always amazed by the people who do because of the incredible experience that it uh, is and must be and that the Bible portrays in that. As we look at that, I do so with 
admiration saying, wow, that is such a cool thing. That's amazing. But if you talk to someone who's adopted, they don't ever distinguish. They don't ever say, oh, yeah, this is my they don't walk up and introduce you to your children and say, this is my my son and then this is my adopted son, <laughs> right? They don't do that. They're just like, this is my son, right? That's what God the Father does to us too when he says, there's no more Greek, there's no more Jew, there's no more male or female, slave nor free, nothing like that. They're all mine. You are mine. I am my beloved's and he is mine. And so being brought into this family, as you follow this theme of adoption all throughout Scripture, what you see is God passing down an inheritance first to Abraham, right? And then to Abraham's heir. Who is Abraham's heir? This one specifically says Abraham's heir is Jesus. And then as we receive Jesus... We are united with God. This text says we are baptized into him. We become one with him. We're part of the family. Therefore, in Christ, there is no more distinction anymore. It's not like we're, you know, we were Gentile Christians. We're just Christians. We are all one in Christ. We have this inheritance. As long as we are in Jesus, we receive all the same benefits that are given to who? God's son. You are co-heirs with Christ. And that is absolutely phenomenal to think that we can be in the family of God by nature of our relationship with Jesus. We are co-heirs with him. That is why Ephesians chapter 1 says it like this. In him, that is in Christ, we have this inheritance. Our inheritance is in Jesus because he is the only begotten of God, and because we are in him, then we become a part of that inheritance. So what is it then? What do I get? Ephesians chapter 1 says it like this. Here's what you get. Here's your inheritance. Here's your riches. Here's your wealth. Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our sins or our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us, making known to us the mystery of His will. We have all these incredible things in Christ Jesus. We have the forgiveness of sins. We have redemption. And we have grace with which God lavished upon us. Now the word grace here in the biblical languages basically means favor. If you're a child in your parents' household, what this means is that you are the favored one. That you're, you're the favorite. That when you look at the father, there's a little twinkle in his eyes and he looks down at you and says, there's just something special about that one. I like them. I don't know what it is about it. They're a little rascal sometimes and they need a little pat on the bottom to get them going the right direction. But they sure are cute. Can't hardly be mad at them for much more than a second. That's just the way they are. You are special. You are favored. His grace is lavished upon you. In Him we have these things. And unlike our physical inheritance, the Bible goes on to describe our spiritual and eternal one. And it says, look, it is, it is imperishable. It is eternal. It is completely different than the stuff you look at in the stock market which goes up and down and maybe here one day and gone the next. 
This is a guarantee given to you by God's sovereign grace. He says, you get this. So rather than telling his children, don't build your life around it, he says, yes, do build your life around it. Build your life around this eternal inheritance that you have. So go out and spend everything you've got now physically so that what you get in the future is so much better. Blow everything you have now to follow Christ forever. Go for it, because I guarantee you're going to get it because you are rich. In Him, you have redemption, forgiveness, grace, eternal life, and imperishable reward. A share in the new heavens and the new earth where nothing impure will ever enter it. In effect, our inheritance is the sum total of all that God has promised in Jesus Christ. We get Jesus. And if we get Jesus, we get it all. Who is this world made for? Jesus. It's all for Him. And if we get Him, that means we get it all too. That's a good deal. Midland Free, essentially what I'm saying to you today is you leave this room, I want you to know that you're rich. (laughs) I don't know how you came in today, but I know how you should go out feeling so, so blessed. Because in Christ, you have everything you need. When I was in high school, my uh, family did one of those things that families do. At the end of my high school career, they decided, well, we're getting to that point where the kids are all going to be moving off and leaving home, and let's have one last hurrah. We're going to take a big, big trip, you know, road trip, family, Griswold, vacation, whatever. Here we go. Everybody load up. And just to give you a little context, my, my family history is kind of interesting in the sense, you know, when Paul says, I know how to be, you know, both poor and rich, that's kind of how it went for me. Uh, when my dad started out, he pursued a PhD in theology. So he was going into the teaching career, but he pursued a ton of schooling. So when he finally started working, he was very poor and had a lot of debt. Then he started to work with his PhD and then felt called from theology into medicine. And so with a PhD and with all this investment, he drops all of that and then goes into medicine. So another 10, 12 years of schooling, and then by the time I'm in high school, he gets his first real job, right? And essentially what that did for me is it showed me how to be poor. I can remember going to the back of the uh, semi-truck where they're handing out the cheese blocks and we hand in our uh, coupons and then we walk away and take it home and mom makes, you know, macaroni and cheese for everybody around. And that's what we do. But then when it came high school time, my little sister, who's much younger, has an entirely different experience. I remember growing up like that where we had the, you know, bowl on top of your head and getting the haircut like that. She remembers going to the spa and getting her nails done. (laughs) Totally different scenario. And here we are with this strange mix of family background. My dad um, being, you know, a Nebraska farm boy whose dad was a mechanic. My mom uh, having nothing from her family. Just pretty much Missouri rednecks. Here we are. Now we get to this point and they decide to take a vacation to Hawaii. And this is pretty different from my normal experience. And they're staying in a nice resort. And we go one evening 
to a restaurant, and the people at the restaurant, at the front door, they look at us, and they're kind of like, what? (laughs) I'm wearing pants today. That's because my wife dressed me, but if not, I wouldn't look like this, and you'd know why they were looking like that at me. We looked just like, you know, whatever, and the restaurant did not expect us. And so they asked us not to come in, and they said, we request that if you'd like to eat here, that you uh, go away and come back better dressed. And we were just like, and my dad's like, come on, here we go. So we went back to our hotel room, and we put on the nicest clothes we brought on vacation, and he came back with his American Express. (laughs) And we went right in, and salads came, and appetizers came, and drinks came, and coffee came, and dessert came, and he kept just rolling it, rolling it, rolling it, sort of to make his point. And my younger brother, who has a much different personality than I, at some point looked around the table, and he said, boy, it's good to be rich. <laughs> I was just like, oh, man, Josh, what are you saying, man? What are you doing? And it was, it was different, right? But that's the thing. It changes your perspective depending on where you're at. And the reality is I think sometimes we as Christians, we walk around like, ho-hum, I got nothing, poor me, woe is me, blah, blah, blah. Don't you get it? You're rich. You are so rich. Start living like it now. We have this inheritance in him. And yes, I understand we're not walking on streets of gold. Those are later. But right now there is enough grace, there is enough forgiveness, there is enough favor to get us through. And we can say to our Father in heaven, hey, I'm, I'm drowning here. I need a little help. This is a hard week. It's not an easy day. And I need to reach into that storehouse and make a withdrawal and pull out a little bit of grace for my inheritance. I need it. Lord, put the payment down right now because I need your help. This is a tough week. And as a result, this is what the Father is doing when he's constantly putting his inheritance in front of you. He's saying, look, you guys are so rich. It's not going to hurt my feelings if we talk about this. I've already sent my son to die and he's risen. So it's not like you're saying anything about our relationship. Moreover, I think rather than cause you to be lazy, it will actually motivate you in your Christian faith that you'll work more. And as a result of that work, you'll just plow ahead with complete confidence knowing that you got nothing to lose and everything to gain because of your inheritance in Christ. Move forward in faith. You're rich. Act like it. Now is the time for you to seize the day, grab the opportunity, and trust in what God has called you to do. By nature of our adoption, God has graciously given us all things because He's given us His Son. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says it like this. This is how we have to describe it. Sort of a both and, already, not yet. We're rich now, but we don't have the sum total, but we can still make withdrawals. What does that look like? Well, we have this treasure. It's in jars of clay. That's us. To show the supreme surpassing power that belongs to God, not to us. You don't get your inheritance because you earned it. It's given to you. We might be, and we are, in fact, inflicted in every way. We are crushed and per- uh, we are afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, 
persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying around in us, in the body, the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh, knowing, here's your guarantee, that he who raised the Lord Jesus in victory from the dead will also bring us into his presence. So what's the result? So then we do not lose heart. For even though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an inheritance like you wouldn't believe, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So that as we go through this life and we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In him we have an inheritance. Marked with the promised seal of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee until we acquire the possession of it at the fullness of time and the return of Christ in the complete fulfillment of all things to the praise and glory of his grace. Amen. Father, we thank you for everything you've given us in Jesus. We're so rich. We're so crazy, filthy rich. How can I ever be discouraged? How can I be downtrodden? How can I despair? Lord, would I insult your gift? Would I insult the lavish riches of your grace? Lord, please continually impress upon me my future inheritance, the thing I have coming and the things I have now so that no matter what we're going through, we will look to the future and work hard in the presence, knowing that you are with us and you love us and you will help us and cause all things to work together for good. In Jesus' name we pray.